In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. Saint Dominic. Saint Francis. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Having spent some time earlier today considering at some brief length the issue of adoration, we now move into the following, the the next movement associated, especially through Fatima, with devotion to the heart of Mary. But again, just like adoration, I want to stress there is a much earlier connection to the idea of reparation uh, to the heart of Mary than the appearance of Our Lady at Fatima. In fact, one finds prayers of atonement to the heart of Mary written in the 1600s, some at least 250 years before the events at Cova de Ira in Portugal. And I also want to stress that reparation follows upon adoration or it will not be done rightly. And so the order of the steps that we're taking is distinctly placed before us. Note that when the angel appeared and taught the children, it is belief flowing into adoration, flowing into hope, producing love. Out of love for the Lord comes the second part of the prayer, which is an apology for, a seeking of pardon for others, a movement of, in a sense, reparation. And if we pause and just consider the relational dynamics at play here, we understand why this must be the case. If I don't appreciate the goodness of the relationship between us, why would I seek to restore it? If I don't appreciate that someone is worthy of respect, why would I give it? And why would I be troubled if respect is not given. And so adoration is that movement that begins with an intrinsic sense of respect for the one in whose presence I find myself. And as I recognize that and I turn to that one and I rest in appreciation of his goodness, his greatness, his grandeur, and I realize that this one is indeed worthy of respect, not just of my own, but when we apply it to God, of everyone's. Suddenly, then, I become conscious in my life of the ways where I have not paid that respect. And as I look at the world around me, I am suddenly aware, all too aware, of the broad indifference and even hostility that one finds to the Lord. And so note 
Reparation, important as it is, is a second order movement in that sense. Something must be there first to ground it and to give it context. And now having said that, I mentioned in the previous talk that these are words that have a directionality to them. Adoration is directed toward heaven, or it is directed wrongly. Only one is truly adorable, and that is the Lord. And so adoration deals with the verticality, in a sense, of my spiritual life. The fact that I must pay attention to, I must engage, I must respect the Lord. And I recognize that the Lord is worthy of respect. Reparation, on the other hand, has a different directionality. It involves my relationship with the Lord, but it also involves necessarily my relationship with the world around me. And as I look out and I see how I fall short, and I see how we collectively fall short, I become concerned. And on the one hand, now, note what reparation does. Reparation takes the vertical pole of my relationship with the Lord, and it doesn't flip it, it adds something to it. I remain conscious of the greatness of God, of the goodness of heaven, but I am also conscious of how I have not responded, how the world does not respond. And in doing that, I seek to atone for the wrong that I have done. I seek to repair. But I am also concerned about my brothers and sisters who perhaps unthinkingly, unwittingly, or perhaps even maliciously turn their back on grace and goodness and on their behalf. So note, I look outward. There's a horizontality now. On their behalf, I likewise turn toward heaven, saying sorry even for things that are not my fault. And I want to pause on this because this is vitally important and this goes against a lot of how we North Americans approach the world. Where if it's not my fault, why should I say I'm sorry? And it's this false myth of an individuality that is disconnected from everybody else. Both liberalism and conservatism sooner or later fall into this trap, but in different ways. Um, but the simple fact of the matter is this. We are redeemed by the great act of reparation, which is Jesus, who unlike us is in fact innocent, who unlike us has nothing to apologize for, who, unlike us, is in fact truly guiltless. And what does he do? He takes upon himself the weight of a guilt 
that is not his, but it's ours. And on our behalf, not on his behalf, on our behalf, he cries out to heaven for us. He bears the punishment that is mine and yours. And he doesn't say, but it's not my fault. And he doesn't say, but I didn't do it. Why should I apologize? He takes it onto himself. And at the foot of his cross, unlike us, is Our Lady, who likewise is innocent, who likewise is not guilty. And she willingly unites her heart to his, and she suffers in union with him on behalf of us, on behalf of a world that is, in fact, guilty. And why? Because she's in that world. And we have to recognize that then this is very much a matter of the heart and devotion to the heart. And note what the fonts of this are. The offended honor of God, the wounded dignity of man, concern for a world that so unthinkingly, so rudely, and so blindly falls into indifference, into coldness, into hatred, into violence. But we have to understand the natural resistance that we have, but it's not my fault, why are you blaming me, is fundamentally the wrong standpoint. It is an intrinsically selfish and self-centered standpoint that absolves me of a fundamental gospel demand of charity. And so now, lingering with this, because it's very important. When we speak then of reparation as an element of devotion to the heart of Our Lady, there are a couple additional contexts within which it is important to understand this. And the first is this. Intrinsic to sacred heart devotion, and many of you are familiar with the devotion of Nine First Fridays, and that is actually badly named. It is not the devotion of Nine First Fridays. It is the devotion of Nine Consecutive First Fridays. Not of the 12 First Fridays of the year, take your pick. Nine in a row, it is a novena of Fridays. And that is much more demanding than just taking nine random First Fridays over the course of a couple years. It is when the course of 12 months, nine consecutive First Fridays. And those nine First Fridays have a note of reparation about them to the heart of Jesus especially with regard to our indifference to the love he extends to us in his presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Note, the note, note this. 
the indifference, the outrages, the failure to appreciate the goodness and the greatness of his love for us, especially in the Blessed Sacrament. And so note, it's not simply reparation for the wrong we do against one another. It is recognizing a certain failure of respect, a certain failure of gratitude, a certain inability to perceive goodness that we've closed ourselves off to. And it's that failure of respect, that closure to goodness, that inability to recognize that renders us so capable of the other great wrongs that we do in the world around us. The note of reparation connected to the heart of Mary is like that as well. And it recognizes because of this fundamental role Our Lady has been given for us, she likewise is worthy of respect. And there is a great failure of respect with regard to her and her heart and her love that is objectively within us and well and alive in this world, and it has been for quite some time. And so again, note, reparation lives in a relationship. It is not simply a juridical category. A crime has been committed, and I have to make up for it. It is a relationship has been wounded, and it needs to be repaired. It needs to be restored. It needs to be fixed. And what a, what a marvelous reality that is when we catch it. And now having said that, one of the ways that our engagement with the events at Fatima, the message at Fatima, can sometimes go off the rails is we miss exactly this. The reason why Our Lady comes is not first and foremost to give chilling warnings about what will happen if we don't get it right. That's the way we work. We like to use threats. If you don't shape up, this is what is going to happen. And more often than not, let's be honest, when we say those things, we're kind of hoping the person doesn't shape up so we get to exercise the punishment. You know, do yourself a favor at some point and read through the book of Jonah. It's four chapters. You can read through it in 15 minutes. But as you read through, if you never find yourself laughing, you've missed the point. Because the book of Jonah makes great use of humor. The prophet is portrayed in the most ridiculous way imaginable because he's portraying us, and we're pretty silly. And Jonah, as we all know the basic story, is called by God to go to Nineveh. But Nineveh is the great demon of the ancient Near East, that violent city, capital of the Assyrian Empire, which brought nations to their destruction including the ten lost tribes of Israel. This is where Jonah is sent, the Jewish prophet. And Jonah doesn't want to go, and so, his immediate, so the word of God comes to him. He responds immediately by fleeing. 
And he goes to Tarshish, which in the language of that time was the end of the earth. It's not that he left town. He was going as far away from the word of God as he could get. His movement is arrested by the storm. He realizes it's his fault. Instead of repenting, he says, just throw me overboard. And so the fish swallows him up. He gives the fish indigestion, essentially. And the fish spits him up on the shore. And God says, are you ready to go to Nineveh? And he goes, OK. Note the reluctance here. He doesn't want to go, but now he's going because he has no other option. There'll just be another fish. And so he goes to Nineveh and counter to all thinking expectation because there should be no thought that this group of people would ever respond. They are violent. They are warlike. They have destroyed segments of God's people. Unlike us, these are like great sinners. And so they, they are the proverb for the ones who will be dangerous to you, who will reject you, who will not receive you. This is the hatred of the world. And we understand why Jonah's reluctant to go. But he goes, and amazingly, before he even gets a third of the way through the city, announcing, and you could almost imagine the joy in his voice. 40 days more. Oh, God's going to blow you guys away. 40 days more, the fire, the lightning, all of that's coming down right on you. And he's announcing that. And amazingly, something happens, and they decide to respond. And the response is stupid, ridiculous. Even the cows are wearing sackcloth and ashes mooing their repentance to heaven, even though they've done nothing wrong. And Jonah, though, while all of this is happening, while all of this grace is moving, what does he do? He climbs the mountain so he can see the light show. He wants to see the fire come down. He wants to see the lightning bolts and hear the thunder. He wants to see the destruction he was just announcing. Oh, he can't wait. He's got his calendar marked for 40 days out, and he's going to be there so he can see it. If we're honest with ourselves, this is a disposition that all too often can live in our hearts. On the one hand, we pray for the conversion of certain people, but on the other hand, we're kind of hoping they don't. On the one hand, we speak out against the wickedness of the world, but on the other, oh, we really want to see it get its comeuppance. We really want to see the wicked get their due. We really want to see that. And if we're not careful, when we engage things like the sharpness of elements of Our Lady's language at Fatima, if we're not careful, something of that spirit can root itself within us. You know, and so we're saying, oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins. Save all souls from the fires of hell, especially those in most need of thy mercy. And yet we have that little afterthought of Jonah. But if you don't, can I get to watch? That desire that lives in us for those who have offended us in some way to have to pay. Our Lady doesn't come for that. 
and it's important that we understand it. She doesn't come to give this dark warning of danger with the expectation that the world is going to fall into it. She comes because she doesn't want it to happen. It's the opposite of Jonah. Jonah preaches 40 days more and Nineveh will be destroyed and he's marking his calendar 40 days out. But the Lord sends him with that message because he doesn't want to destroy Nineveh on the 40th day. He sends him with the message because he's concerned even for the wicked who live there and doesn't want them lost. Our Lady comes, and even at that moment of showing the chilling vision of hell to the children, it's done gently. Lucia says if it weren't for her gentleness, we might have all died in fear at that moment. It's done to show what the cost of turning from the Lord is so that no one end up there. And we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that. This is an act of love. It's an act of concern. And the call to reparation is connected to that. It's connected to the fact that if no one does anything, people will be lost. And we don't want that. You know, the hallmark of a zealous missionary, we're told, is a desire for the salvation of souls. You know, that's, the, that's what that most in need of thy mercy at the end of the great Fatima ejaculation means, that I really am concerned about that one. You know, not the show, teach them a lesson, not even show them how badly wrong they are, just give them what they need to be saved. Um, and so it's here then that the children who have begun to relate to Our Lady, who have begun to appreciate the grandeur of God, have within their hearts this remarkable concern for their language for poor sinners. You know, and what a beautiful word, poor sinners. And they don't use it in a sense that we're just not very good at sinning. They use it in the sense of they need so much and they have nothing. They've lost grace and they need it. They stand outside of love and they need it. They are not wealthy in anything that matters and so they can do nothing but beg. But many of them are too unaware of their need to beg for grace that they can't even do that. And so we need to do something for them something about them. And so the two elements then, the two elements of reparation that one sees as Our Lady reveals her heart to the children. And when she reveals her heart to the children, when she shows them her heart, her heart is ringed with thorns. And she mentions how it is pierced with thorns and there is no one to remove them. Now, imagine this. These little children hear that and their first thought is, then we better do something to remove those thorns. 
And so here then, here then we see now a movement recognizing we need to do something. And so little Francisco, who is so captivated by the glory of God and doesn't understand how we can be indifferent to it, wants to do reparation, wants to make sacrifices so that the honor of God receives its due. And he wants to do that on behalf of a world that will not honor the Lord. And then there's his little sister Jacinta, who in a truly exquisitely beautiful gesture, decides that she is so worried about poor sinners. Now again, imagine this, she's a seven-year-old girl and she's worried about the poor sinners of the broader adult world in danger of falling away and being lost. And here's this little girl, so worried about the poor sinners of the world, and she wants to be the one who extends a hand to lift them up. A seven-year-old girl extending her hand to try and lift up the world. This is, between these two children, such a beautiful articulation of the heart of Mary. This willingness to want to always honor the Lord for his goodness and appreciate it. But precisely because of that, the recognition that if I love God, I will come to love those whom God also loves. And that includes sinners. And because God loves his enemies, so must we. And so here's the little girl who wants to do that. In fact, one of the things that happened spontaneously on the 13th day of July in 1917, after the children had that chilling vision, they were all so preoccupied and worried for sinners and wanted something done about that spontaneously, and they had no idea what they were doing was recreating an ancient penitential practice. They're seven, nine, and ten years old. They went out and they got ropes and tied knots in the ropes and tied them tightly around their waists because it would bother them so that they would have something to offer up for sinners so that they would undergo some kind of hardship for the sake of those who were indifferent, for the sake of those who were hardened. Now, I'm not saying go out to the store and everybody buy rope and let's do that. But just note the spontaneity here, the generosity that someone must do something and it involves in some way a certain inconveniencing of ourselves. And then to put that inconvenience to good use, I want to have something to offer. What a remarkable gesture this is. And again, in the right spirit, that is nothing other than a gesture of the purest love. I am willing to be wounded, to be inconvenienced in myself for the sake of you, whom I haven't even met, whom I don't even know, who might only be born 40 years from now. Um, 
What a remarkable, remarkable gesture this is. Note the generosity. And the, there's no understanding fully devotion to the heart of Mary or what happens at Fatima without engaging the children. Because they're the ones who show us how to live it. They're the ones to show us how it articulates itself in our lives. And so it's in this context then that Our Lady and then later Our Lord speaking to Lucia in the convent explain the issue of the issue of repentance on Saturdays. As I mentioned in the first conference, first Saturday devotion is an old thing. It is not new with Fatima. And the original form of first Saturday devotion was every first Saturday. And there are 12 Saturdays in a year. And so in a sense, we set the first Saturday aside 12 times like the 12 stars in Our Lady's crown. And why? To honor her, to appreciate her, to celebrate her, to glorify her. Note, to appreciate her, to celebrate her, to honor her, to sing of her praises, and to help others know her. And then, speaking to the children, our lady speaks of her wounded heart, stung by those thorns, and asks them to do something. She asks for something to be done in reparation for the wounds that she feels in her heart, her wounded mother's love. And so she asks them first for not five first Saturdays, five consecutive first Saturdays. And that is important. Not randomly five Saturdays, but five in a row. Know what that implies. Similar to the sacred heart practice of nine consecutive First Fridays, but note, following the pattern with Our Lady, but this is gentler. It's five, it's not nine. These five First Saturdays in a row, that requires a sacrifice of time. It requires the effort to show up, and it requires it done over a distinct block of time, which is longer than a month. And so it requires substantial attention. And she asks this for in reparation for outrages against her heart, against her love. Easy enough so far, right? Why five? Why five? It's a rosary's worth of Saturdays. There are five joyful mysteries, five sorrowful mysteries, five glorious mysteries, five luminous mysteries, five. A rosary's worth of Saturdays. Jesus asks for a novena's worth of Fridays. Our Lady asks for five Saturdays, a rosary's worth. But in doing that, she also says five Saturdays, as Jesus later explains to Lucia, 
because of five specific outrages. Now, isn't that interesting? Five specific things that have given offense to her maternal heart that need to be repaired. And those are outrages or insults directed toward her immaculate conception. Outrages, insults, denials directed toward her virginity. Outrages and insults, denials directed against her status as the mother of God and the mother of men. The great outrage and the insult on the part of many who instruct children and the simple to lose esteem for her or to mock her or insult her. Those who aren't satisfied with mocking devotion to Mary themselves, but teach others to do it, especially the simple. And then finally, those physical outrages committed against her person in terms of the, the sacrilegious treatment uh, of her statues, the destruction of the churches that had been erected in her honor. And so note this combination of things, both physical and relational and theological. Um, but an interesting collection of realities. But note how what they all have in common is they stem from an idea that Our Lady is not worth honoring. They stem from the conviction that there is nothing special about her. They stem from the conviction, often held by misguided Christians who are convinced their intentions are good, that she somehow is a stumbling block to life in her son, Jesus. And so the request is for five Saturdays which are set aside, in a sense, to repair, to atone for. You know, what is reparation? It begins with repair. Dedicated to the restoration, in a sense, of her proper dignity, her proper honor. And note how beautiful it is when we recognize that, because it sits within the context of an existing devotion of 12 First Saturdays devoted to her glory. And so within that movement of the year, a portion of it, she asks, devoted to, in a sense, repairing the damage done to my honor by so many. What a, what a beautiful notion that is. And this process of repairing, this process of amending, likewise, you'll see a pattern here, has five pieces to it. It's a five-step process. The devotion to the five consecutive Saturdays has five steps. Number one, set aside five consecutive Saturdays. That's step number one. To do what? You set there, set aside in a spirit of reparation. And so there is an intentionality. And in that spirit of reparation, the Saturdays are set aside for 
confession, Holy Communion, the praying of the rosary, and 15 minutes spent meditating on the mysteries of the rosary. Those are the steps connected with the Fatima movement of reparation. It's an interesting set of steps. One, set time aside and do it on Our Lady's Day. Second, go to confession. It doesn't have to be on the Saturday, just so that we're clear. It could be a couple days before, it can be a little bit after. But in the engagement of the Saturday, it doesn't make sense to have a spirit of reparation if I am not willing to look into my own heart and attend to my own need for forgiveness and attend to my own relationship with the Lord. And so before I do reparation for everybody else's sins, I should also attend to the darkness in my own heart. Two, it is not go to Mass, it is receive Holy Communion. And that's not an unimportant distinction. The idea here is not to offer a Mass intention, but to offer your receiving of Holy Communion in this spirit. To receive our Lord in union with Our Lady. To invite her into that process. And it isn't Mass, because this way someone can do it from their hospital bed. This way a shut-in who receives Holy Communion from a minister on a Saturday can do it. Note how wonderful this is. This is something, and you know, this is not accidental. Remember, Jacinta and Francisco died in hospitals. And so this request of Our Lady is something that the sick who suffer can participate in. It is those who, for whatever reason, are unable to leave home and must be visited can participate in. And then, note, she doesn't give the children a list. She doesn't give them the seven penitential psalms to say. She doesn't say, here's a new act of contrition to say on behalf of the world. Rather, it's pray the rosary. Five mysteries is enough. Pray the rosary. In other words, unite your heart with Our Lady and gaze upon the face of Christ in the unfolding of his mysteries. But pray. Pray with her. At no point is there ever a requirement, besides what we do in confession with the act of contrition, of saying, I'm sorry. The issue is that all of these things are done in a spirit of repairing. And how is it repaired? We spend time with her because the world turns its back. We spend time. And then, because all too often, what do we do? We rush through the rosary just like we rush through all of our other prayers. 
you know, at some point it crept into the, the Catholic consciousness that the point of starting the rosary is to finish it, and as quickly as possible. And so note the additional requirement of lingering. Either you pray a slow rosary, or you linger quietly for 15 minutes with the mysteries of Christ. With one, with all of them, it doesn't matter. But a sitting in and an appreciating Jesus in his mysteries and Our Lady's presence in those mysteries. Note how interesting this is. It is an act of repairing that involves what we would think are ordinary practices. And yet these ordinary practices done intentionally have a great power about them. And they have a power about them because when we do it in a spirit of, rep of reparation, we are not doing it merely on our own behalf. We are doing it likewise on behalf of our brother and sister poor sinners. We are doing it on behalf of a world that refuses to apologize, doesn't recognize its need to apologize, or is simply incapable of apologizing. And so we do it. And so we do it. You know, this is, and this is an important dynamic, you know, as a simple example. Suppose a member of my family insulted you or wounded you in some significant way. And for whatever reason, maybe he's just going through a bad stretch. Maybe he just never had, has never been a good man. Maybe it's unthinking, and he can't even see himself what the big deal is. But for whatever reason, the wrong has been done by a family member of mine. And he's not going to say he's sorry. He will do nothing to repair it. He won't even acknowledge it. I didn't wound you, but as a member of the family, I still have an obligation to do something in the name of the family for you. Even if it's as simple as an apology. I didn't do the wrong, but I can speak on behalf of the family, and to that extent, I can speak on his behalf. Not completely, but in a real way. This is very much what we have with regard to the idea of reparation. Because the human family turns its back. Because all too often the Christian family turns its back. All too often in the church, the Catholic church, Our Lady has been set aside, offended, neglected. Oftentimes by misguided and misdirected good intentions oftentimes by callous indifference, oftentimes by sheer wickedness and hypocrisy. But we're connected. And it's this notion of recognizing, just like when we spoke about the children adoring the Lord, and that even if nobody on earth will adore, earth will adore you if we do. Even if nobody else says they're sorry, Earth will apologize because we are. And it's this turning to the heart of Our Lady that we're told 
that as this is done more and more faithfully, without our even directly asking for it, the grace of conversion will come. Note how beautiful that is because it removes the judgment from me. I don't have to look necessarily at a specific person and say, Lord, I pray for his conversion. There are times I need to do that. But there are other times it might be me that needs to be converted. And so this way I can turn to the Lord. I can turn to Our Lady and just say, I just need to be about making sure things are right with you. Not just for me but on behalf of those who have no idea how wrong they're going. And sooner or later, if enough of us are engaging the course correction, things will straighten out. Why? Precisely because Our Lady doesn't show that disturbing vision to the children because that's the outcome she wants. She shows it to them so that they realize how serious it is that they begin and teach others after them that it's important that somebody do something. Otherwise, we just fall into the trap of all excusing ourselves, saying, well, it's not my fault. I didn't do that. It's not my wrong. But that attitude would never have gotten Jesus to the cross to save us. Um, and so again, note again where this sits, where the real power of this is. This is the disposition of the heart of Jesus, which looks at a world, and if I can quote St. Louis de Montfort, Jesus looks out from heaven after the fall in the Garden of Eden, and he looks down at Adam, who is suddenly opening his eyes to what has happened. And he, see, he looks up and he sees that heaven has become closed, and there's no one to open it. And he looks ahead of him, and he sees that hell is open, and he can't close it. That's who we are. That is who fallen man is by himself. Fortunately, fallen man is not by himself, because the Lord looks and sees that and says, I will go. I will bear that cross. And I will close that open, yawning mouth of hell. And I will open heaven for him. I have done no wrong, but I will not let him be lost. It's very much a statement of the heart. And it's Our Lady's heart, in a sense, that pulls her to those children. It's through that heart that Christ comes into the world and so this importance of making ourselves right with Our Lady so that the graces that flow in such abundance from her heart can flow more freely in this world. What a beautiful, beautiful element of devotion that is. Yesterday I promised you guys something, and I'll conclude with this. These words were written in the 1600s by St. John Eudes. Remember what I told you about the five things associated with the Fatima call to the first Saturdays and the five things that need to be repaired? 250 years before. Listen to the words of this prayer. How much deep sorrow I have, O Holy Virgin, 
when I consider the insults that you have received and that you continue to receive every day from the malice and the ingratitude of men? What outrages have the heretics not committed against you? They have omitted nothing in acting to destroy your glory. They have argued against your august status as the mother of God. They have denied your virginity. They have challenged your power with regard to God and your kindness toward men. They have refused you the glorious titles that the church has given you. They are striving mightily to abolish devotion to you. They have profaned your holy images and overthrown the temples dedicated to the Lord under your name. Oh, how is it possible to find hearts so ungrateful and so impious as to despise you and to persecute you in this way? You who are worthy of the most profound veneration and the most tender love of angels and of men. But how can it be that even among the faithful who profess to recognize all of the privileges with which the Lord has adorned you, one still finds, and in such great numbers, those who have nothing but coldness and indifference toward you, who take not even the slightest trouble to show you the, the affection and the gratitude that they owe you, who neglect to honor you, to invoke you, to avail themselves of the help of your protection, and that which further outrages and which deeply wounds your heart, O Holy Virgin, is to see your dear son so often and so severely offended by Christians. It is to see that many of them even cover themselves up with your protection, as though with a veil over their disorders, and that by a presumption which is greatly insulting to you, they make of your mediation a guarantee and a reason to persevere in their aberrations. And what faults do I not have to reproach myself with in regard to you, O oh my most holy mother? How many times by my sins have I not thrust the sword of pain into your maternal heart? What return and what appreciation have you found in me until now? What care did I take to render my homage to you each day? What attentiveness to imitate your virtues. Humbly prostrate at your feet, O Mother of Mercy, I beg of you pardon for all my past infidelities. I desire with all my heart to repair them as far as it is possible for me to do, and to make to you at the same time an honorable atonement for all the acts of ingratitude and for all the insults that you have suffered from men. It is in this view that today I take forever towards you all the feelings of respect, of love, and of gratitude that are due to you. I offer you my homage, my praises, and my service. I make a very great profession of belief in your divine maternity your perpetual virginity, your holiness, and your glory above all creatures. I revere with the Holy Church your immaculate conception and your glorious assumption. I believe that your power, your goodness, and your mercy are proportionate to your ineffable dignity as Mother of God 
and to your eminent holiness. I recognize you with joy as mother of mercy, a mother of grace, as the refuge of sinners, as their advocate and their hope at the side of Jesus Christ. I regard your protection and your favor as an infallible means of obtaining from the goodness of your divine Son all of the graces for which I hope, for this life and for the next. And as the heretics have labored to abolish devotion to you, I will glory all my life to uphold it, to be numbered among your servants, to defend your interests, and to obtain as much as it will depend on me, that you will be honored, loved, and served in a manner appropriate to your grandeurs and your kindness. Divine Mother, deign to accept these sincere desires that I form here at your feet. Let me taste the sweetness of your sacred heart, source of peace, of mercy, and of love, so that by the imitation of its virtues, I may merit to glorify eternally with you the Almighty who has worked such great wonders in your favor. Amen. And in that beautiful little prayer is about as complete a summary of the idea of reparation to the heart of Our Lady as we have. Consciousness of the wrongs in the broader world, the wrongs in the church, the wrongs that I do. And so first an apology on my behalf, an apology on behalf of the church, an apology on behalf of the world, but then note with the apology is a statement of confidence, a statement re-embracing love of Our Lady, commitment to Our Lady, and a desire to honor her. It is not merely a confession of guilt and a plea for mercy. It is a commitment to say, I will change and I will glorify you. And as I glorify you more greatly in its own curious way, so does the world. What a marvelous attitude that is. And so note how in the end, reparation leads back to adoration. And both of these things are at the service of belonging. And the word we use for that in Marian devotion is consecration. And that will be the theme of our topic tomorrow morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.